Welcome to Into Theology. I'm Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we are studying a ancient book of theology, one of the greatest works of literature ever, ever written in the ancient world. It's the book of Job from the Old Testament that many of us have probably read or at least know about if, if you're a Christian. Um, Ian and I are going to spend probably about, looks like, three weeks on this and maybe have another fourth week um, with a special guest. We'll see how that turns out. But we wanted to take a little break from John Calvin's Institutes, but we do plan to return and finish it in 2021. It's just so big and so large, and it's been a lot of fun to read the scriptural theological works, and we're enjoying that too for our encouragement. So as we get going, um, Ian's going to open up with how the book basically opens up, at least with Job's kind of initial speech from Job 3. It's, it's a shocking kind of poem, and I thought it'd be interesting to open that way. So Ian, do you want to read away? Yeah, we're so we've we're going to move kind of three chapters in and start our reading here with sort of Job's lament. Uh, you you were talking before uh, Robert Alter called it what? Um, I don't remember the, the exact language, but something like a a death poem. A death poem. It's yeah. like this this guy does not like what's happening to him at all. So I'm going to start with reading. I'm just going to read from Job chapter three. So after this. Uh, this is with his three friends. Um, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those cursed who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its own dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together they hear not the voice of the taskmaster, the small and the greater there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long after death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who receive, rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, who God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I give no rest, but trouble comes. So, do you Whoa, think, what did that guy go through? Do you think uh, many churches uh, have this as their reading on Sunday morning? <laughs> you know, what's interesting is uh, that um, it, Job was actually typically a reading that was done during Holy Week. That mm -hmm. was actually part of the liturgy in Holy Week. Um, so. I mean, Is it for good, very, because of Good Friday and all that, I wonder? Yeah, all that kind of stuff. And just like the, the bringing down low and the need for redemption and these kinds of things. It's, it's pretty amazing poem, right? It, it begins the sort of um, 
uh, group conversation piece, this, the different speeches, like it's, it's an intense way to start it. So basically chapters one and two sort of frame the narrative, frame the story yeah. before the, the poetic conversations happen. So you read those two chapters and it's kind of like a standard sort of narrative that you would read. And then you just have this, whatever it is, I think Alter says something like a harrowing death poem. You're like, Whoa. <laughs> and, it, and it is right. Like he's wishing he could die essentially. Yeah. His life is, is bad. It's horrible. Um, yeah. The opening, weird. the opening two chapters are framed, what, like a kind of prologue, right. That are sort of, right. it's a, it's prose. Then you get all this poetry and uh, like so you get prologue, then you get poetry, really high poetry. And then at the end you get God speaking in prose. Uh, and you can see like, there's this like kind of really glorious, as you said, like it's a very literary work and, uh, and that, that's just apparent in its basic structure. Yeah, I think so. So chapter 42 concludes chapters one and two introduce they frame all the poetry within. And then there's the, the conversation between Job, the three friends, uh, then the fourth friend Elihu comes in and then finally God uh, has the last word <laughs> at the yeah. end. Yeah. One of the, I was telling you this, one of the neat things about this whole book that Robert Alter brings up is the, the quality of the poetry in Hebrew, that there's a progression in quality so that when you have the three friends, it's, it's brilliant, it's good. But when Job talks, the quality of the poetry is better. Yeah. But then he saves it up. And at the very end, when God speaks, whatever those chapters, 38 to 39 in poetry, it's the best of all. Yeah. And so there's not only the sort of obvious chronological sequence, this obvious notional thing that that's happening, but also that the quality of writing is elevated in order to capture uh, who's speaking in a way that is revelatory and special and helpful for us as readers. Yeah, incredible. It might be useful just to say like, so who, so who's Job? Is Job a guy who needs a job? Is it Job? Is yeah, Steve Jobs. This uh, is how, I'll if you want to get a job in the Bible, you read the book of Job. <laughs> you can hear my, uh, my kids all coming in the house right here. Well, they're going to, they're going to help us out. By, uh, so are you guys going to help us understand the book of Job here? <laughs> They'll be the, our counselors. We're, we're recording just so you know. So, so it'd be nice and quiet and why it will edit this bit out. <laughs> I hope. Oh, you never know. <laughs> Could be good. It, yeah, so, I've had a kid jump in on a, a podcast before, so. There um, you go. Just don't do like that guy on CNN did. I was just thinking <laughs> like, tries to hide it. No one actually cares, really. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, um, we won't be much longer, so just probably a little bit more. So I, I would say it's interesting that the Job, one thing we can say about him is he's not an Israelite. Yeah, it starts it off right in verse one, telling us that he's from the land of Uz, I guess is how you would pronounce that. Sure. And it, from what I understand, uh, that's a, as you said, it's not an, it's not an Israelite city. Um, it's east of the Jordan. Um, so it's, it's in that general region in the ancient Near East, but it's east. And so it seems that, I mean, it's very interesting just the way the whole, that whole chapter starts, right? It's the, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And uh, the man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil seems very intentional all that you know it's like he's not doesn't seem to be an israelite so it's not he's not somebody who's part of any kind of covenantal relationship with god yet he's also described as being blameless and upright right and i think i think the idea of turning away from evil is important that's going to kind of like frame part of the intention of the whole book is that yeah you know, that whole idea we'll talk about probably of retribution 
this is a man who's done no wrong. What's interesting too, I mean, he's, he's blameless and upright. The word blameless or complete integrity, if memory serves, it's, it's how Noah is described as well. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's useful to mention, I mean, we have these uh, characters who are sort of outside of the Israelite system, Melchizedek, famously right. so, who are righteous and, and Ruth, somebody like Ruth. Ruth. Yeah. For ex- yeah, there's, there's and uh, Job in particular is, is another example of this. And there, there is a real sense in which this, what scripture reveals to us is what is most important, but we, we really know the Abrahamic story. But that doesn't mean that God is somehow restricted in what he did in the world. Like, we just don't know. Like, it's not recorded for us. It's not for us. Inter- it's not for scripture. But like, people like Melchizedek, Job, Ruth, and others who we probably don't know are, are part of, you know, God's family. We'll see them in heaven, I'm sure. I don't know how it works. I don't have much more to say because there's no book about them. Right. Right. It but it is like, interesting. It, well, it seems like there's, you see that right in the very beginning, even in Genesis, right. Where the, 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 there's a narrowing in and a focus on this particular family of Adam and Eve, but there are other people out there. Right. right? Like, who are they? You know, when Cain has to be protected and he needs a mark, who's he protected from? Right. You know? Who are the people uh, that call in the name of the Lord? Yeah. And so I, I just want one note is like, before Christ, I mean, we know the Israelite story in particular, but I don't think we need to restrict the cool things that God is doing in the world that we just simply don't know. Um, right. You don't want to say what it is because we don't know. <laughs> so you got to be careful in both directions. Yeah. But yeah, it, but it is careful. fascinating to just to kind of consider that. It's you, interesting too. Like he's framed as this guy who's a pretty wealthy, you know, man. You know, mm-hmm. he's got he's got all he's got ten kids. You know, seven seven sons, three daughters. He's got a lot of property, a lot of possessions, right? All like three, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 don- female donkeys, many servants. It says very many servants. And he was the greatest of all the people in the East. And, uh, and so he's like, this guy's, the guy's pretty well off, you know? Interesting. That's another kind of thing to note about him. Now, I, I must have read this, but when you said the East... That also kind of helps to confirm that, you know, he's not an Israelite, he's from Uz, but he's also from the from the East, which is going to be probably Mesopotamia. Yeah. It, it, fr- from the perspective of an Israelite reading this, you the East yeah. would be Mesopotamia. So Babylon yeah. or uh, modern day Iraq, I guess. Um, I mean, wherever exactly. So, But it's also interesting, right? He's a powerful guy, but he's also a pretty religiously minded guy. You know, yeah. like he has these feasts with his family. And Sacrifices at the end. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's priestly, like, right? He sacrifices. He's priestly. Yeah, I was just gonna say he's exactly just, right. He, he's he's a pre, his kids should be doing this, but he does it for so his kids. Just to make the point that Melchizedek is both a king of Salem, a wealthy, well, presumably wealthy, but he's at least ro- a regal figure. But he yeah. also uh, has a priestly kind of function. I mean, Jesus is a Melchizedekian priest. Yeah. M- my brain is foggy, but in Genesis 14, does he do a sacrifice? I can't remember offhand. But um, I don't remember. Yeah, no, that's it's fine. Um. It, it is, well, I mean, Abraham pays him a tithe or Abram, so. Yeah. Um, he brought out bread and wine. There you go, the first Lord's table. There you go. <laughs> um, so it is interesting. We have this framing thing. We have this unique figure named Job who's kind of mysterious like Melchizedek. And yet we should expect that if we have a God who's a God, not just of Israel, but of the Gentiles also. Yeah. He's the God of everyone. So Job being a Gentile in the Old Testament scripture still speaks truly to an Israelite, just as he speaks truly to us. Uh, maybe another useful thing to talk about is like, okay, this whole book is sort of a conversation about however you want to word it. In one sense, it's like theodicy. 
In one right. sense, it's trying to explain suffering. Another way, it's trying to understand uh, the idea of retributive justice and God's control of history. There's a word, there's a phrase that could characterize what's happening in Job, and that's a phrase, uh, natural theology. Yeah. So like, maybe talk about like what's natural theology? What, what does that mean? So generally, when we think of the idea of natural theology, we kind of connect it today to apologetics or something, right? Like how you can have arguments for the existence of God from observing the natural world. Um, but like in a kind of broad sense here, what, what it seems to be happening with Job is that he he's not he's not it doesn't seem that he has any kind of like special revelation given to him, right? In a way that Abram would have or, or right. Noah or whatever. Um, although actually, maybe even with Noah, I wonder would Noah. That's an interesting thought with Noah and natural theology. But anyway, um, well, they both have revelations from God, interestingly enough. Yeah. But here, here you're, you're, you're seeing how here's a guy who's considered righteous, he's upright, he's performing this priestly duty, and yet doesn't seem to have any kind of special revelation at this point, at least as far as we're aware. So how does he know how to relate to God? Well, he seems to be relating to God somehow through general revelation, that there's something about the the, the uh, revelation of nature that's sufficient for him to somehow know God, um, which I don't quite understand, to be honest with you. I mean, hypothetically, too, I mean, if, if, if God created the world, if Noah's family lived as long as they did after the flood, they're very likely is going to be, they are transmitting what's true from earlier revelation. Yeah. There's no, maybe the better way to put it is, there's no obvious inscripturated, uh, scriptural revelation, but there doesn't mean there's no, revelation oral. at all yeah. oral okay, revelation yeah um that might be kind of how how i view it so a guy like melchizedek he just probably knows from however noah and his family spread the the good news afterwards yeah. um but it is interesting that, that the question they're asking nonetheless are the questions that surround natural because they don't know i mean uh the three friends come and they're trying to figure out why job is suffering uh job is complaining he's suffering he's trying to figure it out too um, but there, but it is interesting that they, they, like most of this book is us overhearing conversation about how to understand suffering or reality, the world, retributive justice, what this looks like. And if the answer was just, well, you should never do that. It would be odd that this whole book would be here Yeah. at the very end. Uh, when God does have the final word, which necessarily must happen, because that actually shows the limits of natural theology. Yeah. That it can't go that far. It can only, you can speak truly, but you cannot speak comprehensively. And so God actually challenges everyone on that, Job on that in particular. Uh, where were you when I did X, Y, and Z? Like, I, I actually am the, the, the Lord of creation. So you trying to analyze creation can only go so far because I'm the Lord of it. I know the ends of it. You only know your limited experience. So he, yeah. he puts Job in a good way in his place yeah. where God remains in a good way in his place as the incomprehensible God that of, of creation. But, but it is interesting. We're, I think we're still here encouraged like Ecclesiastes to think, I mean, Proverbs says, study the ant, right? Yeah. Uh, we're actually supposed to look at creation and reflect upon it because the order that we perceive in creation is really an effect of, of God's created order. I mean, it would make, yeah. it reminds me, I mean, I, I think I maybe even quoted this before um, on this podcast, but Belgic Confession, Article 2, basically two ways God reveals himself to us. One yeah, is through the book, the book of nature, one through the book of scripture. 
Um, if we privilege the book of scripture to the point that we exclude the book of nature, then that's not, that's actually a denial of what scripture says about nature, as well as a denial of the fact that nature itself screams the glory of God, like in uh, Psalm 19. So I think we want to be able to affirm the things in the right ordering. Um, the Belgian confession says scripture is more clear. That's absolutely true yeah. <laughs> that we need it. And Aquinas will tell us that scripture is sufficient unto salvation. I think Paul does too. Nature is sufficient to know God about him rather his invisible attributes and so on, but it's, it's just sufficient enough to condemn us. <laughs> there you go. It's interesting. I think I mentioned this too, in this podcast uh, at some point um, in terms of Bonaventure who talks about how there are these vestiges of God within nature Bonaventure has a natural theology, but it's this idea that like uh, the the effect always has some sort of semblance to its cause. So God, when he creates the universe, um, the universe is the effect, but it has these vestiges within it of the thing that actually caused it, which is how we then can know God through the natural world. Uh, so anyways, they used to remind me of like I, what I learned yesterday, and I'm dumb that I never picked this up before. So I've actually read... His, uh, you know, the journey to the mind of God or whatever that you're, um, at the beginning, he has this vision. So Bonaventure, sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, St. Francis. And, yeah. I never, I don't know why I never, it's St. Francis Stigmata. I never, I'm so dumb that I've read that. I think more than once. I'm also reading it in another translation to like review and, and <laughs> Latin. And I'm just so stupid. That I never figured out that it's all about St. Francis Stigmata. <laughs> Like I don't know, like I've just totally missed that, and I and I jump to the the nine the nine scaled ladder. Everyone go. who's listening has no idea what I'm talking about. It's probably fine. Just Google it or whatever. Let's um, just go back to Joe. Let's go back to much Joe. Less, <laughs> much less confusing than Bonaventure. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, okay, chapter one and two. They'll frame it with someone named Satan or the accuser, depending on translations. Um. What is this? What's who? What? What? <laughs> Yeah, it, that, is this normative? It, is this normal? Does God have accusers with him? Yeah, it's one of the hardest sort of like texts in all of scripture, really, to kind of like wrestle your mind through, you know, because you have this figure, as you say, who uh, at the very end of uh, or the middle part of, of chapter one and verse six, uh, there was a day when the sons of God, whoever they are, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan or the Satan or the accuser. Uh, came uh, came among them, and the Lord said to Satan, uh, "From where have you come?" And Satan answered the Lord and said, uh, "From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it." And so he's this guy, he's this wandering accuser, and it's 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 actually that God says um, to him, "Have you considered my servant Job?" Uh, so it's not even like there's this accuser that's coming per se to. To, 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 to want to just do something to Job, but it's actually God who kind of like addresses it initially. And that, that's, that's the hardest thing to consider, right? Is that it's, you're thinking of this question of theodicy or the goodness of God in light of human evil. Um, here you have this statement um, and it seems problematic at first, but you realize God's in absolute sovereign control over everything, including evil. And so it would not make sense for God not to be the one in control here as hard as it is to work out. You're muted. Even just, sorry, even thinking about this, you have this interesting thing where you have this, the accuser who is roaming about the earth uh, appears before God 
and God talks to him and so on. It tells you a couple things that are interesting. One is uh, what happens in heaven happens on earth. There's a correspondence between these two things. Reminds me of the Lord's Prayer a little bit, but. Reminds me of a guy's podcast called Heaven and Earth that I know. Yeah, reminds me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this is, uh, Moses already showed, that, showed us this in his ascent to Sinai, uh, that he makes the tabernacle and all the instruments after the, according to the pattern of the pre-existing thing that he saw in heaven, which is where Christ actually, as he ascends, serves as a high priest for us in that pre-existing tabernacle system. Anyways, but coming and back then, to well, this. The writer of the Hebrews makes the same. Hebrews, that's right? kind of, yeah. And then, and no wonder then that there's a heavenly Jerusalem that comes down in the book of Revelation. Right. This is why Craig Carter tells us that we need to be Christian Platonists to be able to kind of like help frame this. Discussion. Right. Well, Moses was, so um, I think we're allowed to be. <laughs> I actually have a couple. Anyway, I won't, that's going to be distracting. Um, you see other things like this, though. In First Kings uh, 22, you have this council uh, before God in, in heaven. And here's something that's, that's said there. First Kings 22, verse 20. It says, Yahweh, uh, the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to march up and fall at Ramoth Gilead. This is in heaven. And one suggested this and another that. Verse 21, then a spirit came forward, forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, asked the Lord. And he replied, I will go out and be a lion's spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. You will surely entice him and prevail, said the Lord. Go and do it. <laughs> See, these, you know, these interesting passages that are hard to comprehend in which you have uh, God in heaven around his sort of a courtroom, like in Daniel chapter seven, for example, the ancient days and all, all that kind of stuff. And you have spirits at this time who are able to come to God, who we probably categorize as unclean spirits. Um, this will be interesting. Once This is a theology. And once you get to Revelation 12, one of the unique things that happens after the ascension is that Satan and a third of, of the angels in heaven, his spirits, are actually cast down from heaven and no longer allowed to appear before the throne. I mean, this is the Christus Victor motif. If you're a Christian, <laughs> uh, Christ is actually conquered. And one way you know that is that the devil and his minions are on earth. And they actually can't, at least in this way, can't appear before God like they used to be able to do freely. Uh, Christ is actually now the mediator between God and man. There's no, there's no, the accuser can't do much. Um, that was all that was everywhere in scripture. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how it is. And we just don't see it. And it's Job that's sort of like tipping us off a little bit here. Because um, it is, it seems like it is a kind of like court. Is it a, would you say it's a courtroom scene? And and that's why the, there's the role of the accuser here. And so is God set up here as a kind of, as a kind of judge. And so there's all this, like, is this a statement of like constant accusations yes. that are coming against so, and there's two, two answers for why that, that's probably true. It's throughout Job's asking for a mediator. <laughs> a he's asking for a lawyer. He's put, who put his hands on him and, and his hand on God. But secondly, Job is declared to be upright. And Satan says, is he or is he only good because you've privileged him? Take his privilege away. Take the good things away. And we'll see his real mettle. God okay, so says, he, doesn't, he doesn't say you're allowed to take his life at this point. You're allowed no. to take his land and you're allowed to take his family. And at the end of chapter one, we find out verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. So Satan escalates the attack. He fails his first, uh, you know, his, his first case doesn't go well, I guess, the first day in court. So then he kind of comes back 
and he's roaming the earth again. And God, once again, in one sense, kind of taunts him in chapter two and verse three. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> like for, did, no one else on earth forget? is like you. <laughs> like you fail on, on day one of court. He fears God and turns away from evil. Again, fascinating. And he does his own sacrificial system, all that kind of stuff. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. And Satan says, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life. Stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he'll surely curse you to your face. So Lord, the Lord tells him, okay, fine. Do whatever you want to him, but don't kill him. Just spare his life so that we can see kind of what's up. Interestingly enough, his, Job's wife agrees with Satan. So in 2 verse 9, she says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Remember, Satan said that if you afflict him, he'll, his flesh, he'll curse you. Um, Which is interesting, right? When you think of bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Oh, yeah. And then hmm. you actually make this attack. It is, in a sense, it's his wife, it's his flesh, you know? His, uh, his better half, but in this case, his worse half. She, she's not a good, uh, uh, the old word, not a good help meet at this point. Then you have these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, who's, who's actually a, um, he's a Lord of the Rings character, Bildad. He's a uh, hobbit. There you go. <laughs> Bill Dad the Hobbit from Shireton uh, or whatever. Uh, I just find his name reminds me of like Bilbo and all those kinds of names. Then you have yeah. Zophar. And they heard about this and they're his friends. It's utterly fascinating. They come, they weep with him. So that's all good. And then they wait with him and say nothing for seven days and seven nights, which by the way, reminds me of, of Moses on the mountain where he doesn't say anything for seven days before God. And then, then, then I think God speaks to him on the seventh day or something. Yeah. Uh, and then we have Job's opening speech. So they're there weeping with him for seven days, tearing their clothes, I believe. Is that right? They're weeping out loud. Yeah, tearing his robe. The first thing they hear after a week of silence is Job saying, may the day I was born perish. And the night that said a boy is conceived. He's like, kill the day I was born. Yeah. Just wipe it out. Because my life is, is uh, worse than death, essentially. <laughs> Which doesn't sound too unlike Jonah, right? Um, although Jonah doesn't come across as being particularly righteous, uh, whereas no. here, you know, here you have God who wants to spare the the Ninevites and the Assyrians, and Jonah doesn't like it, and he's like, "Man, he's like, you're, I knew you were kind and gracious. Now I wish I were dead." Uh, we're here. The contrast with Job is that Job actually is a righteous guy. You know, the book the book makes that very plain. Uh, he maintains his integrity in the midst of this awful suffering. And then, and then, and then he's just, like, no, no, I just, I'm not going to curse God, but man, I wish I was dead. And one thing just to kind of add to this is at the end of the book, uh, at least twice, God says that Job spoke truly about me. Uh, he remains, Job remains upright and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that means that what he says here is generally speaking, okay. The super important to emphasize because there is a there's a miscalibration in some evangelical understandings of faith that eliminate true lament, true suffering. This kind of it's almost like this false kind of like happiness. Well, no, you don't have to have that. You can be faithful and feel like death. <laughs> like it, that's that's not a contradiction in terms. The problem is if you lack hope. 
So hope must remain. And actually we'll find, I don't think we'll find it today, but I think in Job 19 and so on, where Job holds on to a certain kind of hope. He hopes my redeemer lives. Yeah. And it's, in, it's interesting because, um, you know, um, when you think of, I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Have you ever read that? Uh, no, I don't know. Okay. Uh, it's, he was, um, he was a, a psychoanalyst um, who was Jewish and was thrown in Auschwitz uh, during the Second World War, hmm. during the Holocaust. And um, he psych- psychologized from the inside both hmm. the, the prison guards, the Nazi prison guards, and then as well as uh, his fellow Jews who were, who were suffering. And uh, he noticed how um, the people that would give up, uh, one of the things they would do that was kind of indicative to give up. Hold on one second. So let me just restart that a little bit. You might have to cut that. I'll never record it. It was actually my... paused, so it'll it'll look it'll be fine. It's already cut out. Okay, there you go. Um, yeah. So Viktor Frankl, he was a a Jewish psychoanalyst um, who had been thrown in Auschwitz during the Holocaust, and he um, psychologized both the uh, the people that were in there with him, his fellow Jews, as well as the the guards who were running the camp. And uh, one of the things he noted about the Jews uh, that he was in there with was that when, when one was about to die, one of the things that they typically did uh, was they smoked their last cigarette that they had hidden. And that was indicative that they had given up hope and then they would die within a few days. And, uh, and that's his whole, his whole idea is that, you know, if, if you have a sense of hope or meaning in the midst of suffering, you'll get through it. And it seems like, you know, if, if we end up uh, doing or do have a friend or a guest come in at the end of this little series, um, this, this person that I've been talking with, he's, he's indicated that one of the major kind of themes of the book of Job is this quest for meaning, for meaning in the midst of suffering. Why is this happening? Uh, and, um, and that's kind of like the way that Job can kind of get through, you know? Yeah, I... It's a fascinating book. I think what we we'll, we'll spend a couple more weeks on this and we'll get more into the text, but I, there, there is a passage that might be useful to read as we kind of wrap up our time in, in chapter nine. Uh, it's good to read it all, but I mean, obviously in this podcast, we're not doing a verse by verse type of thing in verse nine in, uh, sorry, chapter nine, verse 32, Job says with reference to God, for he is not a man like me that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court. There is no mediator between us to lay his hand on both of us. One of the things that natural theology can do is ask the right question. (laughs) Job is looking for a mediator to put his hand on him and on God to resolve whatever the problem is. And it just strikes me that there's so many questions in this book that while they're not finally resolved, even at the very end, even when God tells you, you, you won't be able to figure it out, they begin to be resolved at the cross. I don't say fully resolved because I actually don't think the cross will solve all of our queries, at least this side of the resurrection. Uh, we're still saved in hope. Uh, but at, yeah, but at the cross, God assumes our humanity and our suffering and at the cross swallows up death and evil and suffering uh, for our sake. 
And it, I think, begins to answer the question, well, we do have a mediator <laughs> between God and man who actually not just laid his hands on, on us and God, but in his own person, united humanity and divinity so that humanity might be healed not only by his incarnation, but by his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and ongoing high priestly service that uh, where he always makes intercession before God before us today. So I, I think Job is one of those books where you're like, if you're, if you're going to look for like the, the gospel promise, you don't find it in explicit terms as such, but you have the gospel questions. <laughs> um, yeah. You have statements too. Like uh, I know that my redeemer lives. Right. So yeah, yeah I will good. see him in my flesh. Um, yeah, it's interesting too. When you think of Christ on the cross, like he is the true, um, he is the true, just righteous man who is suffering unjustly and brings about the greatest good. So we, we see the, the good at the end of Job in that he has everything restored to him. Right. But there's a weird insufficiency about it. It's like, you know, if you, if my kids died, so I have four kids and they died and then I get four more kids. I'm not going to be like, well, I'm good now. <laughs> you know, like I still right. want the other back, you know? And so there's, there's a, there's a restoration that happens, but it's sort of incomplete one. That's kind of, there's a, there's still a longing for more answers at this point. And that, yeah. that's to get progressive, progressively revealed as, as the canon goes, goes forward. Well, I think that's maybe a good place to end. We didn't really get into it, but we'll talk maybe next week about the retributive principle in the book of Job and how his friends and Job try to work out this problem of, of suffering and evil. Thank you. And we'll see you next time.